0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at emmanuelag.com. So you know, Jesus did many, many signs, many, many miracles, but John records seven. He records seven for a specific reason, because there's something he wants to teach us about the ministry of Jesus in these seven miracles. But look at John chapter 20. I'm gonna skip this for a minute and go to John chapter 20. Look how John ends his book. Now keep your finger in John chapter five because we are gonna come back there. John chapter 20, it says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, the purpose, John says, for putting these miracles in this book is so that you can believe in God, and through your believing in God, you can have the life of God. You can have life in his name. And he's not speaking of just natural human life, but more of it, you know? Sometimes we think when we read the verses that Uh, God so loved the world, which is also in John. You know, whoever believes on him will have eternal life, right? Sometimes people think of that as living forever, eternal life, living forever. But it's not just living forever. It's God's kind of life. It's life without beginning, life without end. It's the quality of life that God has that he wants to give to us. Because if you told some people that they would live forever, life is so hard for them, they would just fall into utter despair. Nobody wants this life, but more of it, right? We're looking for the life to come, are we not? And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about possessing the life of God. Having this life is what allowed Paul to say in 2 Corinthians, put that verse up, chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is the life of God he's talking about. We are afflicted in every way, he says, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. How can he say that? Because he's filled with the life of God. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Look, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That's the life that he's talking about. So no matter what you're going through, what situation you're going through, you can be pressed, persecuted, pressured, but you don't have to be crushed and destroyed. Amen? Because you're filled with the life of God. It's, it's, it, having this life is what allowed Peter and John to say to that uh, um, lame beggar at the gate, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. That was the life of God. Amen? So the reason that John described these miracles is that so we would come to a place of believing. And that by believing in Jesus, we would have this life that he wants to give us. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Right? See, if you're born again, if you have some, if you have God in your life, if you're a new creation, you have something that the world doesn't have. Whoever has the son has life. That's good. That's good. So let's make it our goal also as we look at these miracles. Let's not come to the end of our study and uh, without coming to the realization that this is an invitation by John to to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and also possess that life of God. Amen? Listen, how might your life look different if you'd come to the realization that you are filled with the life of God and that the life of God is flowing through you? Think about that for a minute. How might things change in your world if the life of God is flowing through you? How might you be able to bring that to bear into whatever situation you're facing? How might you be able to take the life of God to work, to your family, and just keep that pressure on there until that life of God begins to change those circumstances? Amen? Come on, that's good. That's good. So let's go back to John John 5, verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18 that's why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, he did this miracle on the Sabbath day, but he was even, call, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay, Jesus, they were wanting to kill him because he called God his father. But listen to how the book of John opens up. Remember John chapter 1, 12? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Do you see that this is what John is talking about? He's talking about the life of God. We talked about it in our Bible study on Wednesday, but we were looking at another verse. Remember 1 John 3, 1? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And it says, and so we are. And so we are. We're children of God. Okay, they were wanting to kill Jesus because he said, God is my father, thus making himself equal with God. You are made out of the same stuff that God is made out of because he breathed his life into you, right? Right? That's what we're talking about. It's a profound thought. I'm not saying you are God. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when he put his life into you, you have something. You are a possessor of the life of God. It's a profound thought, is it not? If you're born of God, there is something about you. You know that phrase. There's something about him. (laughs) There's something about her. When you're born of God, there's something about you. There's something that the world doesn't have. And it's the life of nature in God that's inside of you. So when I was in India with, with Kim, I read this, this miracle in John chapter 5. And this is the miracle I read that got me so inspired to preach on the seven miracles in John. So I'm excited about this one today. What I didn't know is how difficult some of the other ones would be <laughs> to, to understand. Because John is a wordy book, you know. John just, the dialogue goes on for chapters, john's a very hard book to preach out of because you almost have to read the whole thing and absorb it you know but um here we go hold on okay so jesus did this miracle on the sabbath day okay and um john 5 17 john jesus answered them my father is working until now and i am working point number one is this god is always working the spirit is always moving he did this on the Sabbath day, and this miracle was a turning point in the book of John. Because at this point, it began that animosity from the Jews, where they wanted to kill him. You read through the dialogue, and in the end, you know, he called God his father, and it's like, that was it. But he started, he was disrespecting their holy day, he's healing, he's calling God his father, he's doing these things, and, and it, this was the beginning of the animosity that, that would not stop, it would only increase until they had him hanging on the cross, So this is a turning point in the book of John. The Jews were so jealous, or zealous rather, about keeping the Sabbath that they failed to realize that the Sabbath wasn't the most important thing in their life. The Sabbath was a signpost that was pointing to something that was coming, right? That's what a sign does. When you're driving, you see a sign and it says Knoxville 100 miles ahead or 20 miles ahead. It's because you're going somewhere, it's letting you know something that's coming, The Sabbath day was a signpost. It was pointing to something that in the time of the temple wasn't there yet. You know, all those who come to Jesus, the Bible says, they cease from their own work and they enter into his rest. Doesn't Hebrews describe our born again experience about entering into his rest, right? So Jesus is saying, I'm here. It's time to come to me, enter into my rest to cease from your labors and come into me, enter into my rest. I'm the fulfillment of the Sabbath. But they were so zealous about keeping the Sabbath, they made up their own rules about what keeping the Sabbath looked like. You know, most of the things that they had a problem with, Jesus wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking their rules that they made about God's law, right? So the very thing, here's the thing. They're making their own rules, and they missed the very thing that the Sabbath was pointing toward. See, the whole Jewish nation was waiting for Jesus to come. Their whole world revolved around the fact that God was going to send them their Messiah, and when he finally came, they couldn't handle him. He just wasn't what they expected. Okay? That's a sobering thought, because how many of us think that When God does the miracle, when he starts to move, we're going to be the ones who've got it all together. You know what I'm trying to say? We pray for a move of God. We pray for a move of God in this church. We talk about the great end time revival that's coming, right? And I think there's some real biblical basis for that, as well as some real credible prophecy about it. But what makes us think that we're going to have it all right? What if God looks at the church and he says, you know what? I can't use them. They're not flowing with me. I'm going to have to go out and get a bunch of tax collectors and day laborers and make my own army and put my spirit on them and put my word in them so that he can send us a message. Ouch. <laughs> it's a sobering thought, isn't it? See, we need to, we need to um, the Jews really believed that they were going to, that when their Messiah came, he was going to agree with him. They believed that the, when the Messiah came, they were going to just pronounce everything that they were doing right, and they were going to, he was going to restore political power to them and, and uh, make Israel a nation again and rule, and they were going to be just right with God because they were so zealous about how they kept the rules, and they were missing it the whole time. What about a move of God in this church? Are we going to be those who God is actually using to bring about his will or are we going to be the ones that he has to rebuke to get his will done? <laughs> Let's humble ourselves before him now so that he won't have to humble us later. Let's walk in an open humility toward him and toward one another. Amen. Let's take that time and esteem one another, honor one another. Even if we don't understand everything, even if we don't agree with everybody, Let's walk in that kind of humility now, right? Humble yourself. (laughs) Humble yourself. Save us a lot of humiliation later. Amen? So if you'll go with me to John chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to get into it here. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. In these lay multiple a multiple of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, so picture this. There's this pool, and, and another translation calls it porches. Okay, so these porches were built around this pool. And all these disabled people, the people who couldn't work, you know, the people who couldn't... Uh, Somebody needed to take care of them. They would drag them there, and they'd set them there by this pool. Then the NLV says, listen to the picture it paints. Inside these porches lay many sick people. Some were blind. Some could not walk. Some could not move their bodies. I mean, there were feet missing, you know? There were were, uh, crippled bodies, withered hands, people who could not even lift themselves up. They're all laying on these porches. Why? Because they're hoping to be healed. They're hoping for something. I'm reading out of the ESV and some translations don't have verse four. So I'm going to skip over to the King James, the new King James version and read verse four. It says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse four, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. <clears throat> now, the reason this doesn't appear in all the translations is because it doesn't appear in the oldest texts, okay? It's, it's in some of the later texts. And some people think that that verse was added just so that we understood why they were waiting at the pool, okay? You can decide whether it should be in there or not. But what we do know from the whole context is everybody was sitting around there waiting for this water to be stirred, because if they could get in that pool where the water is stirred, they believed they could be healed. And that's what's going on here. And from what I've been able to discover researching this, that pool was actually a site where there was archaeological evidence I read that it was even a holy site for, for uh, uh, the pagans, for the non-Jewish people. Because there was something about that water. They believed it had healing or curative powers. So it wasn't just the Jews who were around the pool, it was... Others who were also around the pool looking for help, looking for healing. You know, healing and help from God, man, everybody needs it. We're never going to get to a point where we don't need that. Because you come to a place where the doctors can't do it, man, we got to be able to grab a hold of God. Amen? So they're waiting for the stirring of the water so that they could get into the pool. John 5, 5, 5 verse 5. It says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. He'd been paralyzed for 38 years. That is a long time. Now, it doesn't say that he's been sitting at the pool for 38 years, but it just says that for 38 years he'd been paralyzed. See, it doesn't seem to matter to God how long a person has had a thing. What matters is to us you get a problem for so long, you start identifying with it. You start getting used to it, right? It gets hard to imagine life without that problem. But for God, it doesn't matter how long. Let's do that today. What's that thing that you've been carrying or, or dealing with or putting up with or, or it's just kind of moved in with you and it's part of your life? This, let's, let's just pretend like no, it doesn't have to be anchored here. It's not a permanent thing. For God, it can be gone like that. Right? Let's not hang on to it. Let's release it mentally. Release that, right? Don't, don't cling to that anymore. It doesn't have to identify you. It doesn't have to be a part of who you are going forward. Right? Let it go. It doesn't matter how long. You know, the crippled woman in Luke 18? She was bent over for how many? 18 years. 18 years. She bent over. She couldn't straighten out. 18 years before she came to Jesus and he healed her on the Sabbath. He liked to heal on the Sabbath. 18 years. How about the woman with the issue of blood? She bled for 12 years been to doctor after doctor 12 years and when she finally came to Jesus it was she felt in her body that she had been cured just like that do you remember the man at the gate he was over 40 years old over 40 years old crippled from birth this man never walked and one day Peter and John just like that it was over so it doesn't matter how long you've had something don't identify with it. It's not yours. Amen? Why does the Bible give us this information? It's because God does not want us to lose hope. It's because we've been dealing with something for more than a few years. It doesn't mean we have to own it. Amen? Look at verse 6. He'd been there for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. <laughs> but Jesus wasn't asking him about his circumstances, was he? He just asked him, Do you want to be healed? And the man started going on, telling him about all the things that are going on. And Jesus said, Do you want to be healed? Yeah, but I can't get into the pool, and, and uh, somebody's always pushing me out of the way. No. Do you want to be healed? He's trying to cut through the the noise and go right to his heart. Do you want to be healed? He didn't ask him how long he'd been there. He didn't ask him how he became sick. He didn't ask him, excuse me, do you need somebody to help you into the water? He just said, do you want to be healed? I love how direct God is. You know, we're not direct people all the time. When people speak directly, it makes us uncomfortable. Because we have all the—I'm serious. We have all these social niceties that are surrounding our speech, you know? We say things so delicately. It takes a long time to say things, too, when you're like that, right? Okay, my wife is from India. I know how long it can take to say things. <laughs> There's some things they can say direct. There are. I mean, they can be very direct, especially the tribals like her. But, I mean, you can go there, and, I mean, is Dear, kind sir, would you please kindly—and, and, I mean, all of these social things— it's direct speaking makes us uncomfortable, but Jesus is very direct. You know, that's why sometimes when he's speaking to your heart, it's just a word and it's gnawing. It just doesn't stop, right? Do you want to be healed? Yeah, but I, I'm, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be And then you have to deal with it. It makes you uncomfortable, but it's okay. It doesn't bother him. It just doesn't bother him. Anyway, I don't know where that came from. Do you want to be healed? The man answered, I have no one to put me in the water. And Jesus wants to take away all our excuses. No excuses. See, the man thought he would still have to get into the pool. All his hopes were on that pool. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And he's like, I can't get in the pool. And Jesus is saying, I don't need the pool. Do you want to be healed? Yes or no? Right? Jesus is there. He's he thought he had to get into the pool because it was how it was worked out in his mind. He thought everything had to be a certain way for God to work. You know, if the angel shows up and the pool is stirred and I happen to be in there first and somebody can keep the crowd back and I can get in there, then I can be healed. And Jesus is saying, I don't need all that. I'm here now. Do you want to be healed? Let God speak directly with you. Don't be afraid of that. You know, when you get alone with him, when you hear his voice, when you're driving, when he drops that in your heart, don't back away from it. He'll speak to you very directly. And it's for our good when he does. Amen? Jesus says what? I'm always working. My Father is always working. I can help you right now. Don't limit God. Don't think that he has to fix your problem in a certain way. Because as you think through the problem, as you think through what's going to have to happen for it to work out for a favorable outcome, you can only come up with what you know. You don't know what he knows. You don't know what he can do. Amen? That's good. That's a good word. I amen myself. I really, I really want to be the kind of preacher that gets everybody running around. I really do. <laughs> I like that kind of preaching. I really do. I get so, it gets so sober. It's so serious, though. I mean, when God starts dealing with our hearts, man, he's just been doing it here lately a little bit, hasn't he? I mean, it's been good. I mean, uh, a few weeks ago, we had a service, man. How, uh, people's lives were changed. The, the things they were dealing with was there, and then it was gone. My wife is one of them. That's why I can tell you that for certain. She was dealing with some stuff, um, and uh, I mean nothing—nothing like you know evil that we couldn't share or something. But but she was dealing with some things, and all of a sudden one day, the presence of the Lord in this place—it was over for her. Praise God, praise God. Uh, God is good. So where am I? (laughs) Get up! Don't limit God. Jesus said to him, "Get up, take up your bed and walk." And at once the man was healed. He took up the bed and walked, instant miracle, 38 years of cripple, just like that, it was over. Praise God. And when Jesus said, get up, that was the same word, it just means get up, arise. But it's interesting that that's the same exact word in the New Testament that is used to describe resurrection. Right? That's why they'd say, get up <laughs> to, a, <laughs> to the dead girl, arise, get up. It's the same word that describes resurrection. See, this is what's so interesting, and this is the secret about the the workings of Jesus and his ministry and his miracles is this. Jesus doesn't just take other things in the old creation and try to push them against problems in the same old creation to try to fix them. Jesus brings life into the situation. He brings the new creation realities into our present reality. It's what Jesus does. You see what I'm saying? You go to a doctor, you go to a, do a you know medicine, you go get um, a physical therapy, those kinds of things. Those are fine, but they are old creation things trying to fix other old creation things, right? That's what that's the best we can do. But Jesus comes along and he brings in life, new creation. It's all about the new creation. The new creation began in Jesus. He's showing us a taste of what's to come. Amen? Jesus brings the power of the new creation to this old creation, and he gives us a taste of what he has in store for those who believe in him. See, and he wants to do this stuff through you, and he wants to do it through me. That's why he says, if anyone is in Christ, what? New creation, right? Right? If anyone is in Christ, new creation. See, when you understand that our, our Christian hope is not just heaven when you die, we will go to heaven when we die, but then what? We come back because he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, right? The real hope is new creation. But even right now in this present time, in this old creation, if you are in Christ, there is a new creation. You are right now in this present world, a taste of what is coming. what he means when he gives you the life of god your new creation it means a lot it doesn't mean that you're just different from how you used to be which it does it doesn't mean that you know you're just new remade out out of the same old creation stuff no new creation is a very technical and very specific thing in the scripture it's what's coming it's new creation and if you are in christ right now new creation that's good, isn't it? I'm not a Greek scholar. I would love to have the time to study Greek. But I've heard that, that, that Paul wrote so fast there. He'd say, and, and the grammar is so atrocious that he just said, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's like, that's why I say it like that. That's actually how it appears in the Greek. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. You know, and we try to make it, you know, he is a new, cre- or there is a new creation, right? But it's just, he's so excited. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's beautiful, isn't it? And that's what you and I are called to do. That's our vocation as Christians in this world, to be the new creation people, to show the people the taste of what's coming. You up to it? I am. Let's do it. Let's do it. The new creation has already begun, you know, with the resurrection of Jesus and it's carried out in you. Verse nine, right? It says what? At once the man was healed. he took up his bed and walked. I love it. Once he was healed. Now that day was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. So get this. I love this. This is crazy. Jesus, get up, take up your bed. Religious people, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. (laughs) Come on. Don't be religious people. (laughs) Be Jesus people. Get up, take up your bed. You know, they are so committed to their ways of doing things and their own rules, they missed what God was doing right in front of them. You'd think they'd be happy about a miracle. This man was down there at the pool, 38 years, hasn't walked, all right? Can you not break your Sabbath rule that God didn't give us anyway? And they're like, they're all hung up over this rule that they made. They would have rather the man stayed a cripple. They would have. They would have rather the man stayed a cripple than to pick up his mat and violate the Sabbath. That is some kind of messed up. Religious things will mess you up. We need to be God people carriers of the life of god the nature of god the compassion of christ right you are the fulfillment of the law if if you're walking by the spirit and living by the spirit right it's not about our legalism sure i like things a certain way i like certain kinds of praise music i like certain ways of praying and worshiping you know what i'm saying i do and that's fine but you like something different and that's good too You know, I married somebody from halfway around the world, another culture. We had to work through a lot of stuff that's different. I had to learn how to see God in her when what she did looked different than what I thought I should do. Do you see what I'm saying? So we get used to our own rules and things, but let that go. Look for the spirit. We're not called to be ministers of the letter, but ministers of the spirit. Because the letter kills, spirit gives life. Amen. Verse fourteen, yeah. No, listen to this. Listen to this. I wrote this down so I wanted to say it. God is doing things in this church, and He wants to do things here. If we will give Him our yes, He will continue to do things, and He will do amazing things. Amen. Okay, eleven. Verse eleven. But He answered them. Wait, did I read that? Oh, yeah. So the Jews said, let's go back to 10 and pick it up. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. uh, The man that said to me, and then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. You know, Jesus was kind of really under the scrutiny of the Jews here. So he would do things and then disappear, right? So he did. He slipped away in the crowd. Afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple. And he said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more so that nothing worse can ha- will happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I tell you, a life of holiness is a life that's a lot safer than a life of sinning. It is. The Bible does not always connect sin um with sickness. It does not. When you go over and you see the blind man, and the disciples said, Who sinned that this man was born blind? And they said, Neither. He said it wasn't connected to a sin. Okay? But here Jesus is warning him stop sinning. Don't continue a life of sin. Or you could open the door, something could happen you know, you're not going to give the devil authority over your life, but the devil doesn't really need authority. You'll give him opportunity. That's what you'll give him if you live a life of sin. And, you know, he's a thief and he'll commit a crime of opportunity, right? If he sees something he can have access to, he'll go for it. So we want to, you know, holiness is always the best way to live. And it's a reflection of God's nature in you that God is evidence that the spirit is working in you. So stop sinning, he said, so that nothing worse will happen to you. And then verse 15, the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. This is where we started, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. (laughs) And he's like, but the reason I came was to fulfill the Sabbath. And that's what I'm doing, right? He said, my father is working until now and I am working. See, because God is always ready. The spirit is always moving. So here's my question for you today. Are you waiting for the water to be stirred? It's not the water that we're waiting for. It's not the stirring of the water. What we need to do is stir ourselves up. I want to just close today with... I think I have like four things written here, four or five, that how to stir yourself up. Because we need to stir ourselves up so that we can be that delivering agent of healing because we're not doing it by water. It's the Spirit of God working in you. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. It says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul is writing to Timothy. He knew he had a gift of God in him. He laid hands on him. He knew God gave him a gift. And then he goes on, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. He tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. The King James says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. See, you can have a gift of God in your life, but you can let it settle. You can let it settle so much that you can go about your life and live your life as if you did not have a gift of God. I really hate that, but it's really true. People can be used mightily of God, and then they can walk away from that. And God doesn't you know, the, he doesn't take it back and it's still in them and they've not developed it. They've not used it. They've let it settle and they have to go through life and they live life exactly the same way as a person who is not connected to God. See, You're connected to God. You don't have to go. You don't have your solutions to your problems are different than what everybody else in the world has. You can do what you do through the spirit of God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean that I can just do everything. It means everything I have to do in my life, I can do through the Spirit of God. I can do it through Christ. So here's how to do it. Listen to other translations. The NRSV, rekindle the gift of God that is within you. Rekindle the gift of God. Why is he saying rekindle the gift of God? Who rekindles you? You rekindle this gift that's in you. The new uh, NLV, that's the uh, new life version. For this reason, I ask you, I love this one, to keep using the gift of God. Listen to that. To keep using the gift God gave you. The CEV, the contemporary English version, I ask you to make full use of the gift that God gave you. Do you hear what it's saying? Use it. Come on, how do you develop a muscle? You use it. Right. You put it under stress. You put it in a place where you can use it, a place that's that's, you know, you lift something that's difficult for it and you continue to do. And that difficulty becomes easier. So put yourself in a place. Number one, put yourself in a place where you can keep using that gift that is in you. Maybe everything is going smooth in your life. That's great. So put yourself in somebody else's life. Right? That you can pray for, that you can minister to, that you can labor with for their problems, for their needs, but keep using that gift that's in you. Well, that's good. That's a good word. Number two is prayer. Jude one twenty. Jude. Yeah. It's not James. It's Jude. It's his brother. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just as bad, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jude one twenty. Oh no, I I made it go away. Hold on, <laughs> Jude one twenty. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit—spirit-filled, spirit-directed, spirit-led prayer—is a way that you can build yourself up, keep yourself ready to meet people's needs. Amen. Praying in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14.4 says the one who speaks in a tongue also builds himself up. So if you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and you have the heavenly prayer language, pray in the Spirit, pray in tongues, pray in tongues. You know, the the men of God who we've admired in the beginning of the year, you know, I I preached on the spirit of Pentecost, and I was quoting um, Wigglesworth and John Lake over and over and over. Those men, both of them, they built their ministries by praying in the Holy Spirit. They would sometimes they would pray in the Holy Spirit and then they would interpret it and that would be their sermon. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Build yourself up. Be ready. Number three. was that number three or four? I don't know. Keep using what you have. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray spirit led prayer, spirit filled, filled prayers. Christian fellowship. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another. How to stir up one another to love and to do and to good works. Then it goes on, Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, you know, in a Holy Spirit-filled meeting, there are no passive spectators. Everybody has an impact on the meeting. Everybody has a part to play. We can go as deep as y'all want to go and my job i feel like my job is to get out of the way you know because god wants to do things here that i can't do everything but you know one thing i can do is shut it down right i've been in places where you felt like god was ready to do something and then somebody stood up and shut it down right you know that's one of the things that you know i pray about and you know that 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 sunday a couple of weeks ago when it was you know that the, that i was sharing where We just had a wonderful time. I I came to the end and I was standing there. And I I knew it wasn't over, but I didn't know what to say. So I just waited. It was awkward. Waiting is awkward sometimes. But aren't you glad we waited? Because George had a word. And Rick had a word. And Joseph came up. I think Joseph was first. Joseph had a word. And it was good. And it was God ministering through, through the members of his body. And it's, it's better to shut up and be awkward than to keep going when you have nothing to say, right? So, well, of course, we've all done that too. <laughs> but it says, consider how to stir up one another. I mean, you have a mission here. You come here to stir up one another. So go home, get stirred up, and then come here and stir everybody else up. <laughs> That's your job. Get everybody stirred up. And then finally, um, look at Second Peter chapter one, verse twelve. He says this: He says, "I therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have." Okay, he's saying you already know this, you're already established in it, but I'm going to remind you again anyway. I've learned that that's okay to say some things over and over and over. Why? Because you know it, you're walking in it, you're established in it, but we're going to minister it anyway. Why? Because Peter did. <laughs> it's okay to keep these things in front of our eyes. Amen? He says, I think it right as long as I am in this body. He was getting ready to, to, to die. He knew his time was near. But he says, as long as I'm here, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder." I'm going to keep reminding you of what you already know and what you're already established in. I'm going to keep reminding you. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus had made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He was reminding them over and over of what they already knew, what they already had, and that was his way of stirring them up. Skip down to 2 Peter 3 and read the first two verses with me. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. <coughs> He's telling them, I'm stirring you up by reminding you about the prophecies, about the word of God, about the commandments, right? So this is the other way we can stir ourselves up thinking about God's word, reading God's word, remembering God's word, meditating on God's word. Preach it to yourself. You know what I'm saying? Fill yourself, quote it, whatever you need to do, but bring it back to your remembrance and keep yourself stirred up. Amen? Amen. So here's my challenge for you this week. Let's go home. Let's get stirred up. Let's take this week. I don't care if you have five minutes a day or two hours a day. Let's take the time to set that time aside, to read the word, to confess the word, to preach the word to ourselves, to pray in tongues, to pray in the spirit, to pray spirit-led prayers, and let's get stirred up. Amen? Will you do it? And let's come back and stir each other up next week. Amen? And let's see what God will do. Amen? good with it? I'm good with it. All right. Well, praise the Lord. Well, let me uh, just dismiss us in prayer. If you'll hear my challenge. (laughs) Praise God. Father God, we do love you. We thank you for this. I thank you for this awesome church and this awesome group of people who love you who seek after you, whose hearts are committed to you. I thank you for your sweet, your sweet, oh, just your dealings with us in this church and in this place, Lord. We're excited about what you're doing. Father God, I would ask that you would help us to, 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 to help us remember this challenge, Lord, to come to a place where we do stir ourselves up in you because I know that you will meet us there, Lord. I know that you'll meet us there. Father God, I just speak a blessing over everyone here today, Lord. Be blessed as you go. Be blessed in your work. Be blessed in your home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.